You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a nation, we have an important question to answer. How much do we really know our own heritage? Was America founded by a group of old white men? Or has our story always been diverse? Were we able to deal with the injustices of our past through malice and vengeance? Or did we strive towards a higher ideal? Was the United States founded upon oppression and injustice, advancing one people at the expense of another? Or did the founders actually mean what they said when they wrote that all men are created equal? Most importantly, will we continue to build a nation on a false narrative? Or is it finally time that we realize that the story of America is the story of all of us. As time has passed, America has faced many trials and hardships over the years. We have constantly strived to overcome our faults and failures. It is that effort to overcome that defines us, not the mistakes that we have made. Our heritage is one of an expansive liberty, not a crushing oppression. These are the stories of those who fulfilled the promise of America. Their legacy is our heritage. The only question is, will we live up to it? In 1777, a midnight rider in Massachusetts rushed through the towns and communities near Boston to warn of an impending British attack. They were after the likes of Samuel Adams and John Hancock, but no one was truly safe with British troops present. Some went to safety, others went to arms. Shortly thereafter, shots rang out in Lexington and Concord that echoed around the world. The American Revolution had begun. Not only did fighting ensue, but the rebels emerged victorious against the British army. No small accomplishment, to be sure. 
Of course, this would not be the end of the fighting around Boston. A large amount of blood was shed at Bunker Hill. The British blockaded the city of Boston. John and Samuel Adams traveled to Philadelphia to engage in a Continental Congress, lending their voice to the matter of what to do about British oppression. While some may be more inclined to wait things out and hope for peace to prevail, those individuals weren't from Boston, and they didn't know the same kind of terror their Massachusetts counterparts encountered. John and Sam were inclined to the dramatic option, separation. As it would turn out, a few of those from the Virginia delegation happened to agree. By June of 1776, Thomas Jefferson lent his hand towards separation by drafting a Declaration of Independence. By July, independence was voted on and approved. All of this managed to happen in large part due to the help of that midnight rider in Massachusetts in 1775. No, I'm, I'm not talking about Paul Revere. There was another Midnight Rider that had largely been forgotten throughout history, but his impact remains the same. Not only did he help spark the revolution, but he also blazed a trail for all black men and women who followed in his footsteps. This is the story of Wentworth Cheswell. On April 11, 1746, Wentworth Cheswell was born in New Hampshire, Wentworth's family history likely lent a hand to his soon-to-be revolutionary attitudes and actions. He was the child of Catherine Kinston, a white woman, and Hope Still Cheswell, a mixed man. Hope Still's father, Richard, was a slave, but because his mother was a white woman, he was born a freed man. Despite being a slave, Richard eventually bought his freedom. And from there, in 1717, he bought 20 acres of land. For a black man in the 18th century to be buying land, just like any white man, was a revolutionary step, and is likely at least part of where his grandson got his revolutionary attitude in the first place. In fact, Richard Cheswell is believed to be the first black man to have purchased land in New Hampshire. From the moment of his birth, it seemed as if Wentworth was meant to make history. However, it's unlikely anyone would have predicted just how big of an impact he would have had. Hope still worked as a carpenter and a housewright. He earned a reputation for his honest and free labor as being one of the best in the business. He would go on to build a house of John Paul Jones, the legendary naval commander during the American Revolution. As he worked throughout his time in New Hampshire, he was able to save and provide his son opportunities most white children in those days could hardly even dream of, let alone black children. He sent Wentworth to Governor Dummer's Academy in Byfield, Massachusetts. Here, he earned a respectable education, if even unusual. Although he was part white, it didn't make it any less groundbreaking in the colonial 18th society. The education system was usually reserved for upper-class white kids, but there was a child, neither totally white nor upper-class, excelling in expectations. Wentworth capitalized on his situation and worked as a schoolmaster in New Market, New Hampshire, where he was born. It is likely due to this education and involvement in academia that Wentworth's interest in politics truly budded. Like most in New Hampshire at the time, Wentworth was a patriot, fiercely in favor of colonists' rights that Britain routinely violated. 
Yet it went beyond a simple frustration with Great Britain. Wentworth Cheswell was deeply involved with his community. He cared about the people that he called neighbors and sought out for their well-being. Because of this, it was only natural that he should get involved in local politics. In 1765, Wentworth purchased his first parcel of land. He bought it from his father, Hope Still. Within two years, he accumulated his property and influence to the point that he owned 30 acres of land and a pew in the local meeting house. By the 1770s, Wentworth Cheswell would own over 100 acres of land, an impressive feat, even by today's standards. Around that time, the 21-year-old Wentworth took 17-year-old Mary Davis's hand in marriage. The two very quickly produced the first of what would become 13 children. With everything that Wentworth seemed to have going for him, a happy marriage, acres of land, community notoriety, and several children, it seemed hard to view the trajectory at this point in his life as being anything other than inevitable. Despite his racial background in the 18th century, he was crushing any and all pre-existing stereotypes. So naturally, it was around this time that he would wedge his way into the political scene. In 1768, he was first elected to a public position as town constable. This marked the first time in New Hampshire's history, as well as in America's history, that anyone black or mixed was elected to office. Cheswell's rise to popular notoriety couldn't have come at a more crucial point in American history. By the time he was first elected to office, Parliament in London had already both passed and repealed the Stamp Act. The fact that this became law at all, no matter how short of a time it was, enraged the colonists, but especially in New England. Great Britain had demanded for seven long years that American colonists pay with their lives the French and Indian War. Now they are expected them to pay with their properties and their liberties as well. Although the act was quickly repealed, Parliament wanted to add insult to injury by passing the Declaratory Acts. Here they asserted the right to tax the colonists whenever and for whatever reason they pleased. They wanted the colonists to feel as if the Stamp Act was repealed out of their good graces, not out of fear of a budding rebellion. It didn't take long for them to claim their so-called right to tax with the Townsend Acts. A series of duties were implemented on a variety of products, such as paint, glass, paper, and, most notably, tea. Because it was an indirect tax, Parliament felt it might be an easier pill for the colonists to swallow. They were not fooled for long, however, and the Townsend Acts met a very similar resistance from the colonists as the Stamp Acts did. Non-importation agreements became commonplace, as many colonists stood prepared, ready to boycott British goods affected by the Acts so that they wouldn't be able to receive the necessary funds that they were looking for. Backed into a corner, Parliament repealed the Townsend duties on all products, all that is, except for tea. Once again, Parliament refused to appear as if they were giving up their right to tax British subjects. This only further insulted them, and the boycotts continued. In Massachusetts, these are the circumstances that first led to the Boston Massacre and eventually the Boston Tea Party. These are also the events that propelled individuals like Samuel Adams, John Adams, and John Hancock into patriots known across the colonies and even across the ocean in London. 
Yet in New Hampshire, although he was a rather notable local figure at this point, Wentworth Cheswell would not gain major historic notoriety until the eve of the American Revolution. For now, Cheswell was simply trying to improve the lives of his neighbors and his constituents. He proceeded to rise throughout the arena of the political scene. From his first position as town constable in 1768, he proceeded to get elected to one position or another every year until he died, minus 1788. This included the likes of serving as town selectman, auditor, assessor, and justice of the peace, to name a few. However, as tensions with Great Britain continued to rise, he lent his hand to the cause of liberty. Samuel Adams locally organized committees of safety. In essence, these committees would serve almost like shadow governments, making local decisions in an unofficial manner in regard to how to move forward in dealing with Great Britain. Members would be elected just like any normal public position, but their actions and decisions would often be more exclusive. To carry messages back and forth, these committees would elect themselves a town messenger to relay information with a lower risk of getting caught by redcoats. In Newmarket, those voting didn't have to deliberate very long on who they wanted to trust with such a role. Wentworth Cheswell was easily selected for this role, and he took it on with pride. It didn't take long before his services were crucially needed. In December of 1774, Paul Revere was dispatched to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to warn of British warships on their way. A few months earlier, King George's anxiety over an open rebellion started to reach new heights. With the events of the Boston Tea Party still fresh on everyone's mind, and no signs of depressing tensions, the king ordered the export of arms and powder forbidden to the American colonies. He sought to limit the options of the rebels by limiting their means of defense. This, however, did not ease tensions. That fall, colonists were already prepared to resort to violence after the Redcoats seized provisional gunpowder in Massachusetts, turning into what became known as the Powder Alarm. As word of the export ban reached the colonists, many wanted to waste no time sitting around for what they knew was coming next, powder and armament confiscation. Immediately, patriots rushed into action to protect their only means of defense. In Rhode Island, they successfully removed powder and arms from a fort in Newport. In Massachusetts, rumors began to arise that British warships were on their way to protect Fort William and Mary from a similar raid to that of Newport. Paul Revere mounted his horse to warn the citizens of Portsmouth of impending British troops, almost like a practice run for his fateful night just a few months later. Once he arrived, he worked with local patriots on a plan of defense, Portsmouth put out a call to surrounding local communities to help defend the fort. Newmarket voted to send 30 armed men to Portsmouth in service of the cause. As town messenger, Wentworth Cheswell was dispatched to relay the information to Exeter and spread the word of the raid in an effort to recruit men. As it turned out, the brave actions of Cheswell and Revere would pay off. Only six soldiers, including one commander, were then stationed at Fort William and Mary, but the rebels were racing against the clock. If the warships arrived before they did, it would be too late. On December 14, 1774, the Patriots who responded to the call to arms numbered in the hundreds. They stormed the fort, which, despite a very brief altercation, was taken without any deaths. 
Patriots took the arms and powder and, with three cheers, took down the British flag. Of course, after the incident, British officials accused them of high treason, but that mattered very little to the colonists. They secured their crucial means of defense, and as it would turn out a few months later, not a moment too soon. By 1775, the days of colonial appeasement from the British were over. After the Boston Tea Party at the end of 1773, Parliament passed the Coercive Acts to punish the colonies for not putting these rebel activities to rest. Rather than punishing those involved in the Tea Party, all of Boston was occupied and shut down. Patriots, loyalists, and moderates alike all suffered from the new law. Massachusetts was no longer allowed to govern itself on a day-to-day -day function, and troops were dispatched to enforce even the smallest of royal authorities. In order to ensure troops were able to execute the new laws, the Quartering Act was included in the Coercive Acts to provide troops with housing. However, if the British government thought clamping down harder on the colonists would fix the problem, they were sorely mistaken, and not just in Massachusetts. Every colony was warming up to revolution to some degree. It was around the same time as the passage of the Coercive Acts that the First Continental Congress met in Philadelphia to discuss the next steps. Of course, much like the Committees of Safety, this Congress had no legal authority in the eyes of Great Britain, but it didn't really need it. In the spring of 1775, the delegates of that Congress, including Samuel Adams and John Hancock, had returned home already. In Virginia, it was around this time that Patrick Henry made his famous, or rather infamous, liberty or death speech. The question of revolution seemed to be a matter of not if, but when. Then, in April of 1775, point of no return was reached. After the events of the armory raids from the previous fall, Great Britain wanted to stomp out this threat of rebellion once and for all. Rumors had swirled that patriots were hiding arms in Concord, Massachusetts, so a military movement was planned. British General Gage was ordered to disarm the rebels in early April, and to arrest Samuel Adams and John Hancock for their roles in instigating so much seditious behavior. Although he was careful not to put the arrest order in writing so as to not incite open rebellion, he ordered Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith to march into Massachusetts and seize the arms of any and all rebels. Before carrying out this mission, Smith's orders were intercepted by Dr. Joseph Warren. Dr. Warren sprung up urgently and reached Paul Revere, then still a member of the Committee of Safety, and informed him of the impending invasion of British troops. Without a moment to spare, Paul Revere instructed a friend at Christ Church to use the tower of the House of Worship to warn which way the British were coming. If they were coming by land, this person would light one torch. 
and if by sea, he would like two. While Paul Revere took it upon himself to reach Samuel Adams and John Hancock before the Redcoats did, he was not the only member on the road that night. As members of the Committee of Safety, there were in fact three additional riders who galloped across Massachusetts on the countryside that night. Revere went west to Lexington and Concord, the primary area that concerned the British troops. However, the entire region was in danger of having their arms confiscated. Everyone needed to be prepared. Their strategy was to essentially divide and conquer. There were a total of four riders on that fateful night to warn the public of the impending invasion. Wentworth Cheswell was one of those riders. He took a route north toward his home of New Hampshire to warn the people that the regulars were coming out. The next day, with the entire region now being aware of the British invasion, patriots from all over the colony came out, arms in hand, ready to repeal the Redcoats. At Lexington Green, it is unclear who fired the first shot, but it was a shot that was heard around the world. The American Revolution had officially begun. American Minutemen engaged in a conflict that likely none of the Redcoats had expected. It was clear that the British troops were overwhelmed, and they began to fall back. As they did, dozens of Patriots lined the tree lines, firing at them along the way. They never saw it coming. By the end of the altercation, Samuel Adams and John Hancock were safe, and the British troops could not seize any armaments. Although the Americans would suffer many humiliating blows throughout the course of the American Revolution, the Battle of Lexington and Concord would not be one of them. Patriots rejoiced at the sight of retreating redcoats, and all over the colonies they were prepared to sink the entire island of Great Britain. On that world-shattering day, about one-third of the Patriots who engaged in a firefight against the Redcoats were warned to mobilize by Wentworth Cheswell from his historic and heroic ride the night before. Swept up in the Patriot cause, Cheswell was also prepared to vow his life, fortune, and sacred honor in the service of a free country. After the spark of revolution that April, Samuel Adams, John Adams, and John Hancock, and others were once again traveling to Philadelphia to attend the Second Continental Congress. This time, they got right to business. By June, they voted to raise an army with then-Colonel George Washington, also in Philadelphia as a member of Congress to lead as commander-in-chief. Into the fall and winter, the debate raged on as to whether the colonies should make amends with the crown or separate entirely. A few loud voices cheered for separation as early as possible, like John Adams and Samuel Adams and Richard Henry Lee, but it took time to convince some of the more moderate members of Congress. By spring, almost a year after the spark of revolution itself, they were starting to reach a tipping point. Pro-separation faction was gaining the majority, but the vocal minority led by John Dickinson of Pennsylvania threatened to derail the entire thing. As the debate over separation continued in Congress, so too did it continue throughout the colonies. In New Hampshire, however, it was hardly a debate at all. There could hardly be a loyalist found anywhere in the live-free-or-die colony. To the citizens of New Market, independence was almost unanimous in agreement, including to Wentworth Cheswell. In April of 1776, in order to give Congress an extra nudge, and so that they knew that the people of New Hampshire had their backing to support independence, 
The people of Newmarket, including Wentworth Cheswell himself, signed an association test. Signing such a document affirmed the following statement. We, the subscribers, do hereby solemnly engage and promise that we will, to the utmost of our power, at the risk of our lives and fortunes, with arms, oppose the hostile proceedings of the British fleets and armies against the United American colonies. In signing his name to this document, much like how those in Congress would do just a few short months later, Cheswell affirmed that his life, fortune, and sacred honor were entirely invested in the American cause. Yet, this was only just the beginning for Cheswell's patriot activities. A year after America officially broke away from Great Britain, Wentworth Cheswell submitted his name to fight in the Continental Army. And fight he would. He went on to serve under Colonel John Langdon, former delegate to the Continental Congress and leader of the raid on Fort William and Mary just a few years prior. Langdon marched with Cheswell and his so-called company of light horse volunteers to provide reinforcement to the Americans in the already ongoing battles of Saratoga in New York. By the time that they arrived, he helped the Patriots secure victory. It was a jubilant occasion and a much-needed one. General Washington and the Continental Army had been suffering major defeats, aside from the triumphant Christmas surprise attack that previous December there had been very little to show for the American cause and the Revolution. Now, with Saratoga a major Patriot victory, the entire country received a morale boost, and the Revolution continued. For Wentworth Cheswell, however, it had already come and gone. He enlisted on September 29, 1777, into the Continental Army, but by October 31st of that same year, his enlistment was over. Like many Revolutionary War vets, Cheswell had a family to consider and care for. Despite his commitment to the cause, he had other commitments to his wife and kids. After he returned from a brief time as a soldier in the American Revolution, he never stopped being civically involved. As mentioned, he would continue to be elected for a public position for years to come. Although he wasn't actually able to attend, he was even elected as a delegate to New Hampshire's Constitutional Convention. In addition to his civic engagement in Newmarket, he took up a profound interest in archaeology. In fact, while he was restricted by his time and lack of proper equipment and understanding, his field practices were clearly precursing modern archaeology theory. Because of this, he is widely known as New Hampshire's first archaeologist. After independence was secured with the Treaty of Paris, Wentworth Cheswell amplified his civic engagement. He had done such a good job at land and wealth management that he was one of the wealthiest individuals in the area. His interest in politics, civics, education, and archaeology made it only seem natural that Cheswell would utilize his wealth and his resources that he had accumulated over the years to open up Newmarket's first library in 1801, the Newmarket Social Library. In doing so, he also became something of the town's unofficial historian. It became commonplace for Cheswell to collect records and write down stories as they occurred. He collected documents going back over 70 years to 1727. 
His work to preserve the town's heritage proved incredibly vital as historians began to document both the history of New Hampshire and the history of the American Revolution. One individual, Jeremy Belknap, quoted Chaswell on multiple occasions in his monumental three-volume History of New Hampshire and credited him for his thorough maintenance of local history. As years went on, Chesswell became Justice of the Peace in 1805 for Rockingham County. Like every other position that he held, he executed the role of his office faithfully and to the best of his ability. This was the position that he had maintained until he caught typhus fever in 1817, when he died on March 8th at the age of 70. Three years after his death, the country was gripped into a bitter battle over whether to admit Missouri into the Union. The issue that divided the country on whether to admit it was, of course, slavery. Eventually, a compromise was reached. Missouri would be admitted as a slave state, Maine would be admitted as a free state, and all other territory from the Louisiana Purchase would be free territory north of the 3630 parallel. This didn't put the issue entirely to rest, however. There was much debate over whether to grant people of mixed race citizenship in Missouri. In defense of citizenship for people of mixed heritage, New Hampshire Senator Murrell rose to the floor of Congress and stated that, quote, in New Hampshire, there was a man by the name of Cheswell, who, with his family, were respectable in point of abilities, property, and character. He had some of the first offices in the town in which he resided. He was appointed Justice of the Peace for the county, and was perfectly competent to perform with ability all the duties of his various offices in the most prompt, accurate, and accessible manner. But this family are forbidden to enter and live in Missouri. Today, little is known about Wentworth Cheswell. He is largely overshadowed by the towering figures of Paul Revere or Samuel Adams. While Cheswell may not have signed the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, he was every bit of a founding father to this country. In many ways, he represented the best of America, a vision of what it would one day become. Cheswell did not live his life waiting for permission. He simply knew an unalienable truth about his existence, that he was born with the right to liberty. His story is one of action, risk, and adventure, all in the name of liberty. He was just as bold and just as daring as Paul Revere and Samuel Adams. He was just as curious as Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. He was a politician, a soldier, a patriot, a historian, an archaeologist, a civic leader, a good father, and a loving husband. And he was part black, the grandson of a slave who took his freedom. The first black elected official in America, well before the Civil War. The first archaeologist in New Hampshire of any race. This man's story is one that reflects the true history and the true spirit of America, and it's about time that we highlighted it. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in to this week's edition of Profiles in Liberty. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed learning about uh, Wentworth Cheswell and his his heroics, his adventures, uh, and the mark that he left on history as the counterpart to Paul Revere and his legendary Midnight Ride. Next week, we are going to be going over a, a, a true champion 
of, of liberty and of freedom uh, and someone who truly lived out the ideas better than perhaps anyone else in the entirety of this season, uh, and that is going to be of Harriet Tubman. She was able to rescue many, many slaves fleeing from captivity, fleeing towards freedom, and I think that it's someone that a lot of us know about, have heard about, uh, but don't really know her story the way that we should. So we're going to dive into that next week. To be able to make sure that you don't miss out on an episode, I highly encourage you to subscribe to the show, subscribe to the program, share it around with your friends and family, uh, and share the blessing of history uh, and liberty with everyone that you know. I am on Twitter at Caleb Franz. You can follow me. You can follow We Are Libertarians on Twitter at We, the letter R, Libertarians. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. This has been Caleb Franz with Profiles in Liberty.